Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I've got some tips from F1 on how to deal with the big, important moments in your life, plus the importance of taking a break, whether that is a nice two-week holiday in the summer somewhere or simply a moment of calm amongst the chaos. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that that's, that's a failure. Hey everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Thank you as ever for joining me wherever it is you are in the world, however it is you're listening, whatever it is you're up to whilst you're listening to this. I appreciate every single one of you. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, Now, this week, I've got two main topics, as I just said in the intro there, to cover. I'm going to start with this one, because a couple of weeks ago, when George Russell put his Mercedes in the unlikely position of being on pole position for the Hungarian Grand Prix, I was commentating on the event for the BBC. And one of the questions that came off the back of that huge moment on Saturday afternoon, when out of nowhere... George beat two Ferraris, Max Verstappen in his Red Bull was out of the picture with technical problems, and it was Russell who strung together the almost perfect lap to put it on the front row and pole position. And the question that came in off the back of that was, if you were working with George Russell, if you were a member of his team, and he finds himself in this unlikely position... What would you tell him? What would you say to him ahead of the race? What would you what advice would you give him? What would you ask him to do? What would you ask him not to do? How could you settle his nerves? What things could you do around him? What things could you say to him? What could you do for him to try and ease his path into a really high pressure moment, uh, a moment that he's not particularly familiar with, starting the race from the front? hopefully leading the field away and potentially even getting his first race win. And my answer to that question when it was put to me was a very short and simple one, but I'm going to expand on it here because the answer that I gave was I tell him to do nothing differently to the way that he's been driving all season. And I want to expand on that, of course. I want to clarify that. I want to explain why that's the quick and simple answer to this, because If you look at George Russell as an example, he did a great job to stick himself on pole position at that particular race. He was there on merit. Yes, Max Verstappen was out of the picture, but I'm not even sure Max Verstappen would have beaten him on that particular day because on that day, George Russell and Mercedes got the whole car hooked up. He drove a stunning lap. The team had worked incredibly hard to overcome some technical difficulties or some setup difficulties to get the car operating in the perfect window, get its tyres working. Everything came together to deliver a lap, but they were there on merit. They justified that position. They were the quickest car on the day. They deserved to start the race in pole position. So when you're faced with a big moment like that, when it seems like it's the most important day of your life, perhaps, it's the biggest moment of your life, perhaps it's a really high pressure moment like that one. And I'm sure we can all relate to moments like that in our lives. It may never have been sat on the front row in a Formula One car on a Grand Prix start, but we've all had big days in our lives where the things that we typically do, 
week in, week out, day in, day out, all of a sudden seem more important because the context around them might have changed. The person that you're working for might have changed. The moment, the situation that you find yourself in might be a different moment, but the task you're having to do might be a task that you've done hundreds of times before. And that was pretty much the situation that George Russell was in. He started a huge number of Grand Prix. He's actually raced incredibly well. It's that talent and that skill and that experience that he's built and all of those past results, the many, many times when he's launched off the line as the lights have gone out, it's all of those things that he's done very well on so many occasions that have got him to the position that he's in today. It's got him to the position where he's now driving for Mercedes at the top table of Formula One and now finds himself ready to launch off the line ahead of the rest of the field. So when we're in those big moments or seemingly big moments, the moments that we put so much importance on, one of the questions that we should always ask ourselves is, well, what's actually different here? What's different about what I've got to do today in terms of my role in this procedure, my role in this operation, this event that I'm taking part of, whatever it is, What's my role here? And is it different to the role that I played last week? If you're George Russell, you look at that and you say, well, okay, I'm sitting in a Grand Prix car. I'm about to take the start of a race. My task here is to launch off the line as quickly as possible the moment those five red lights go out. Well, okay, I've done that before. In fact, I've done that many, many times before. And actually, I've done it really well. So actually, it's not that new. It's not that new a procedure. The same procedure applies. I need to drop the clutch. I need to react very quickly. I need to, you know, modulate my throttle pedal. I need to apply the torque in exactly the right way, depending on the grip levels that I've got. I need to steer the car depending on what's around me, who's around me, what the other people around me do. But all of those things are things that you've done over and over and over again. You're quite experienced in this role. So when you're sat on the grid in that big moment, When you're working with a George Russell the very first time he puts his car on pole position, I'd be reminding him that he's been here before. He's done these things before. It's just another race start. His role in this race start is almost exactly the same as all of the other race starts that he's taken part in. And actually, maybe it's even easier because, look, he's got nobody in front of him at this point. He doesn't have to worry about the cars in front of him that might get a slower start that he might have to navigate around. He's got a clear track all the way down to turn one. So all he has to focus on this time is dropping that clutch, is reacting to those lights, is feeding in the throttle pedal, all of those things that he's vastly experienced at. So I'd be reminding him of all of those things. And when it comes to our lives and our big moments, we put so much pressure on ourselves in the same way that so many people immediately reacted. And that's what prompted the question to me on the radio was exactly that was, well, what would you tell him? He's never been in this position before. He's never sat on pole position. He's never had this level of success, this pressure. How will he possibly cope with it? And we put ourselves in similar levels of pressure where actually most of the time, a lot of it is unnecessary. A lot of it comes from external sources. It comes from what we think we should be doing, how we think we should be reacting. Because we put so much importance on the moment, we often forget the actual role, our part in this procedure, in this task that we've got to go and do. 
What we do, of course, is we think about the outcome or we think about the consequences of either getting it right or getting it wrong. And we put so much importance on that, it blurs the actual task in hand, which may well be something we're quite familiar with, because the outcome or the consequence might be a bit different. We go back to the Formula One driver, to George Russell, the consequence of him getting a bad start might determine that he may not have the same chance of winning a Grand Prix, something he's dreamt of since he was a little boy. This could be his best shot of winning a race. He's starting on pole position if he has a terrible start, but he might find himself back in P5, P6. But again, I'd be reminding him that that's actually no different, because if he's sitting in P10, perhaps a more usual sort of position, the midfield or the front of the midfield, where he's found himself on more occasions... If you have a bad start there, you may well find yourself back in P15. It's the same thing. A bad start could well cost you positions. The consequences of that are all the same. They're just relative to where you start. And I know that having the opportunity to get your first race win feels huge. And it could be. If you pull it off, it's massive. By putting that pressure on yourself, you increase the chances of you buckling in the big moment because you're losing track of what's actually a relatively simple procedure, one you've practiced, one you've fine-tuned, one you're experienced at, because you focus so much on the outcome or the consequences, it often inhibits your ability to execute on that procedure that you know so well. And so we've got to try and detach ourselves from the outcome or the consequences of the moment that we face and refocus our attention onto the things that we have control of, the things that we know we're able to do. It's like going into a job interview. We put so much pressure on ourselves in those moments because the consequences of getting it right might well mean our dream job lands on our lap. Getting it wrong, maybe we don't get the dream job. Maybe we have to walk away and our one shot potentially at getting that job disappears. Well, first of all, it's highly unlikely it will be your one big moment in life. There will be other job opportunities. And if you didn't get it for whatever reason, well, then you can go on and continue your search. And it may well be that another great opportunity comes your way. That's the first thing. But the second thing is your performance in that interview, the way you conduct yourself actually may have no bearing on the outcome in the end anyway. Because actually, in the case of a job interview, you could deliver your best version of yourself. You could answer the questions in the most intelligent, concise, brilliant ways. You can deliver the best version of your character, big smiles on your face, really engage with the interviewer. And yet there might be somebody better. There might be somebody better suited to that particular role. The person on the other side of the desk just may not connect with you. There could be so many factors beyond your control that could still mean the outcome might not be the one you want. So you've got to focus on the things that you can control. And that's your behaviours, your actions. That's the way you conduct yourself in that interview. Detach yourself from whatever happens afterwards, because so many other factors feed into that. There is only one major factor that has to feed into the way you conduct yourself when you walk into that room. And that is how you've prepared. That's you. That's how you go into that room and how you feel, how confident you are, how worried you might be. And all of those things come down to the way that you build that picture up in your mind before you go in, before you knock on that door, before you open the door, walk in and take the seat. And if we break that down, what is a job interview? 
It's a conversation. It's a conversation between two people. Have you ever done that before? Of course you have. We've all sat in rooms. We've all sat and had conversations, even with people we may have never met before. Even if that is what makes you feel uncomfortable, we've all done it. We've all gone into shops and we've spoken to a shopkeeper. We've bought train tickets at the station and had a brief conversation with somebody we don't know, that we've never met before. We've bumped into other parents outside the school gates and laughed about what our kids might be doing. We've struck up a conversation. It's just a conversation. It's a means of communication between two people, a means of communication we've been doing our whole lives. It's just talking. And actually, a job interview is just talking about yourself. So you're talking about a subject nobody in this world knows better than you. The subject's you. You're talking about yourself. It's exactly the same maybe on a a date, on a first date, the first time you meet somebody. We put ourselves under so much pressure in those situations, we build it up in our minds to be a make or break situation. This could make or break the rest of my life. I mean, it's highly unlikely that's ever going to be the case. It could have a wonderful outcome for you, or maybe it won't. But it's highly unlikely to make or break the rest of your life. And so if we reframe it, in that sense, that it's not as big a moment, it's not quite as important a moment as we often think it is. But importance doesn't have to be the same thing as pressure. We can have important moments, but we don't have to pile the excessive amount of pressure we put on ourselves in so many of these moments we all face. As I often say, in so many situations that we face, so many challenges that we face, It's really helpful. I find it really helpful, and I'm sure many of you could as well, to look back for evidence of these moments we might have been through in the past. Evidence of things that we've done well in the past that could become a benefit to us today in this big moment, in this important moment that we're now facing. What about last time we had a big moment? What about another occasion when we had a conversation with somebody that I'd never met before? On the eve of a job interview, think back to all the moments you've met people for the first time. Everybody you know now, you had to meet for the very first time. And when you had that first meeting, you didn't know them. You'd never met them before. You had to have that very first conversation. They were a complete stranger at that point. Your best friends, that was the case back at school. Your wife or your husband, at one point, you didn't know them. And so you had to broach that first step. You had to take the first step. You had to show a little bit of confidence, perhaps, in making that first step and talking about yourself and explaining who you are and selling yourself to that person, getting to know the other person, sharing parts of your life, sharing the things that you're good and bad at, telling somebody about you. And that is exactly what a job interview is. It's no different. And these little pieces of evidence that we can pinpoint all the way through our lives can really help us in the big moments. It's something that we used to talk about at McLaren when we're coming into the big moments in a championship season. And this is something that's really relevant. And I live by this rule all these years after leaving the team. It's something I'll never forget. When you go into a final race of a season, for example, when your car is in a championship fight... And it might all come down to the last day. When I first joined McLaren, when I very first got into Formula One, I came in as this absolute rookie at a time when one of the most experienced guys on the team was leaving. And he happened to be Mika Hakkinen's tyre man. 
He was in charge of preparing the tyres, getting the right tyres in the car, setting tyre pressures, making sure the blankets were all set to the right temperatures. Essentially, anything to do with tyre preparation before they went on the car was down to this guy. And I remember asking him after I'd just got my dream job at McLaren and I found out he was leaving. I remember asking him, I said, look, why are you leaving? How on earth can somebody walk away from a job that I've dreamt of having for years and have finally got into? And I see this guy not being forced out, not having to leave through injury or illness. He's just choosing to walk away. And his answer to me was he was on the grid in the final race of a big championship season with Mika Hakkinen the year before, 1999. And he said to me, I was on the grid and I knew that I'd put the right tyres on the right corners of the car, that they were the right tyres for Mika's car. I double and triple checked before I put them into the blankets, they were the right tyres, that they were marked up correctly, that the blankets are set to the right temperatures, that the tyre pressures are all set correctly. I know all of those things. Because I checked, I double checked. He said I'd done it hundreds and hundreds of times before. And the reason that he was Mika Hakkinen's tyre man working with a world champion at the top of his game was because he was one of the best in the business. He was one of the best tyre men in the whole Formula One pit lane. That's what happens. The cream rises to the top. And yet what he said to me was on that moment on the grid ahead of the race start in that final championship contending round, He panicked. He said he was terrified. He said he was scared. He walked around that car, staring at the tyres, terrified that he'd done something wrong. And he said the fear overtook him to such a point that he walked away from that race and said, that's it. He said, I can't go back. He said, I was so consumed with fear. The pressure got to me. After all of these years, the pressure had got to him to the point where he was terrified. He didn't enjoy any part of that event. He was terrified. Then he said, when the fear gets so much that it takes over your body to the point where you can't move, he knew it was time to walk away. And I never understood that feeling. I never had that feeling to that level personally, but I could never understand how somebody with so much experience, who'd been through these big moments so many times, could buckle with a fear because he'd built the pressure up to be so much. He thought the consequences of him making a mistake would be so great he couldn't possibly live with himself. And so he walked away. And when I reflect on that now, it's the same thing as when we go into a big pit stop moment in the same kind of situation. And I have been there many times when your driver is in a world championship fight and the same thing happens last day of the season where the championship could go either way. I've been in that situation on a number of occasions. I was fortunate and privileged to find myself in those type of situations. But the pressure that's put on the pit stop crew When you're in the latter stages of the race, you might be racing wheel to wheel just in front or just behind your main championship rival and both cars have to come in for a pit stop before the end of the race. Then it's you versus another crew of people just 20 metres or so further down the pit lane doing the same thing at the same time but under the most intense pressure. The fear could quite easily overtake you in that moment too because actually the role that we all play the role that I played in those pit stops was actually a really simple role it was a role that I was so familiar with I had done thousands and thousands of times before thousands of practices hundreds and hundreds of real life 
high emotion, high stress pit stops. I'd done them all. And I'd never let the team down in that role because I was always so well prepared. So when it came to those big moments, what the team always told us, we had team psychologists, we worked with specialists to help us get through these big moments. And what they always said was revert back to the process. What I've just told you, the advice I would have given to George Russell in that moment when he was on pole position, revert back to what is the process? Because it's just another pit stop in that moment. You're doing a role that you've done so many times before and you've always done it well. You know how to do it inside out. You could do it with your eyes shut. So there is absolutely no problem with you taking on your part in that process. Your role in that process is ingrained into you. Just revert back to those pieces of evidence that we search for. The evidence was all there in abundance. I'd done it before. I'd literally done it over and over again. So I knew I could do it. I knew I could do it quite easily. And so when it came to the big moments, we detached ourselves from the fact that it was a big moment. And of course, it's quite easy to say, not so easy to do. But when you zone in on what your role is, what your job is, zone in on the motions that you're making, the footsteps you've got to take to get out to the pit stop area, the position you've got to put yourself in, the actions you've got to go through, zone in and focus in intense detail on those things the process, the thing that you know inside out and leave no room for your brain to go wandering and thinking about the big moments, thinking about the external pressures, thinking about the people watching at home, watching on television, what the newspapers might say the next day, what the people on television might be saying about you if it all goes wrong. Leave no scope for those thoughts to creep into your mind because you deliberately take up your entire capacity of thought process or focus by focusing on the thing that you have control of. And it really is that simple. It sounds really easy, and that actually is because it is easy. It's just about a changing mindset, getting yourself into that way of thinking. And it takes practice. It does take some time. When I did my first ever pit stop in Formula One, I was terrified. I had no experience at that point. I had not been trained in any way to deal with this pressure situation. But over time, we learned to understand as a team how important it is to have everybody running at their optimum level in the big moments. And the only way you get that happen is by training people, preparing people to deal with them in a way that they are able to do, in a way that they know how. You talk them through that process. You show them why they don't need to worry. You show them that they've done it before, that they can do it. They're more than capable of doing it. And those things can help you in so big a way through those big moments because then they don't become the big moments anymore. A job interview just becomes a conversation with a guy or a lady you've never met before. Something you've done in the past. A pit stop becomes just another pit stop, just like the thousands that went before it. And a race start from pole position isn't really any different from a race start from 15th or 10th. The things that George Russell has done many times in the past as well. When the problems come in, it's because we've typically done something different to the way that we normally do it. 
And that's because we've left that spare capacity in our mind for these external thoughts to creep in, for the pressure to start affecting the way we think and start putting these little implantations into our thought process that make us think differently because although the process is the same, the situation might be different. And when we start thinking about the situation and we start doing things differently, we break from the norm, we break from our routine, that's when things go wrong. And when I was in this moment on the radio talking about my advice or my potential advice to George Russell, where I said, just do things the way you've always done them in the past, I went on to talk about how the mistakes happen in big moments when people break from the routine, when they break from their training, they break away from what they've prepared for. Doing things differently, whilst there are many occasions when doing things differently has so many merits, it's not always the right decision to try something new, to do something different when the pressure's on in those big moments. Making decisions when you're under pressure is often a terrible idea. If we can avoid it, we should. And that comes through preparation. That's why we practice pit stops that go wrong. We practice for when a front jack fails or a driver comes in and stops two metres long. We practice all those things. If a wheel gun fails, we know what to do. We don't have to stop and make a decision in that panicky moment because it's a huge moment in that phase. When it's gone wrong, we start to think about the pressure building. Trying to make a decision of what to do becomes incredibly hard. So if you prepared for it in advance, you know what to do. You know that if this course of action happens, you take this course of action. You switch to plan B, but plan B has been as meticulously prepared as plan A has. I'm going to wrap this particular section up here by leaving you with a, a little story, which I'm pretty sure I might have mentioned on a much earlier episode of the podcast, but please forgive me for saying it again, because it's one of my favourite stories, but it really sums up what I'm trying to say here. Back in 2007, a very dear friend of mine, a colleague at McLaren, Tyler Alexander, he's sadly no longer with us uh, today, but he was a systems engineer at the team at the time. And he was working on Fernando Alonso's car, but over on the other side of the garage on Lewis Hamilton's car on a Sunday morning in this tight championship fight towards the end of the season, all hell was breaking loose on Lewis's side of the garage because they tried to do something a little bit differently. They tried to play with some systems, some software systems on the car to give themselves a little advantage. But because this was Sunday morning, this wasn't something that had been tried and tested. This was something that somebody had had an idea. They thought there might be an advantage over Fernando, their biggest rival at that time. And so rather than just do things the way we always did them, they decided to implement this software update and there'd been a bug in it. It caused a problem. The systems had gone crazy. They were struggling to get a car to select gear and we had only an hour or two until the race start. Panic had well and truly set in. And whilst all these people and software engineers on Lewis's side of the garage were running around desperately looking for a solution, Tyler Alexander on the other side of the garage with me sat in the middle monitoring the situation, looking after the T-car, just making sure that everybody was under control where they could be. Tyler wandered over and said to me, hey Elvis, he was American and he spoke with this kind of gruff voice, so forgive the impression. <laughs> he said, hey Elvis, you seen what's going on over there? I said, yeah, I know, yeah, hopefully they can get it sorted. And he just chuckled to himself, he said, <laughs> yeah. He said, you know what? He said, you spend half a year wiping your ass with your right hand, then all of a sudden, you switch to wiping your ass with your left hand. Huh. It's no wonder you're going to get shit on your thumb. 
<laughs> and it made me laugh so much. I will never forget. <laughs> I will never forget that moment because what he was saying, of course, was you try and do something different in the big moments. And that's exactly what was happening. It was Lewis Hamilton's big moment and the engineers around that car, it was exactly the same thing. We were closing in on a championship where their main rival was on the other side of our garage. With the tensions that had built up that year, they were desperate to look for any advantage to beat the guy on the other side of the garage. And they had resorted to doing things differently on the day when things really mattered. They had decided they would roll the dice and try something new rather than just go, go through the set procedure, the procedure that had worked on every other occasion, the procedure that had got them to the position of being able to fight for a championship. They changed it at the last moment because they thought it was such a big moment and this could be their advantage. But it hadn't been tested. It hadn't been tried out. It hadn't been figured out. They hadn't practiced with it. That's what we always do in Formula One. But they buckled under the pressure and they did something different and it didn't work. And luckily in that moment, they got it back under control. They rescued the situation. They reverted back to the old software uh, version and we got the car running just in time. We got it out and we and, and, you know, the rest is history. We got out onto the racetrack, but it so nearly didn't work out that way because they did something different in a really big moment rather than just doing the same things that had got them into that position of being in the big moment to give them the opportunity of having the big moment in the first place. And that, I think, is the biggest piece of advice that I could give George Russell in that moment when he was on pole position and any one of you. When you face a big moment in your life, look for the evidence of the things that you might have done like this before. And even if you haven't been in that same situation, there are so many elements of our lives that will give us part of that situation where we know we've done it before, or at least we know we can do it. We're capable of doing it. Take away the pressure. Could we go through the motions of that operation? Of course we could. Can I change a wheel at a pit stop? Can I do it quickly? Yeah, of course I can. Can I do it when there's a championship at stake? Yeah, it's no different. It's the same operation. Zone in on the motions of what you're doing, the actions of what you're doing. Zone in on what you have to do, the, the message you need to deliver, the person you need to speak to, the words you need to say. Zone in on the process, zone out of the situation you're in. Okay, so we're about halfway through the podcast and if you're enjoying it, I hope you are, please can I ask you to like or follow or subscribe, to share, to leave a comment. Uh, particularly, could you leave a review at a five-star rating in the Apple Podcast Store, which I know is where most of you are listening to this right now. It'll literally take you a moment. It's literally no more than that. It'll take you 30 seconds at most and I would really appreciate it because it has such a big impact on how we can grow this podcast. The way that the podcast store serves these episodes up to people is based in a large part down to the ratings and reviews that this podcast receives. So if you want to do one small thing in return for me delivering this podcast to you week in, week out, it would be that, please. A rating, a review, engage somehow, tell your friends about it, share it around your networks, on socials, on your WhatsApp groups. Just let's try and grow the community. That's what I ask for you in return. And if you can do that for me, I will continue to deliver these podcasts to you. Thank you so much. 
Okay, moving on. And the second half of today's episode, I want to talk about something in relation to the summer break that Formula One's on. We're on a summer shutdown right now, aren't we? Something that was introduced a few years ago into this sport where the factories of the teams have to shut down. Everybody has to take a break from work. There's no work allowed on the cars. Nobody's allowed to log on to systems. And work essentially has to stop to give the entire Formula One industry a break. And one of the questions that always comes up around this is how on earth does it get policed? How do the FIA possibly know that nobody is working on a a development for a car? How do they know that nobody's secretly designing bits at home, even though they might not be in the factory? How do we know people are not speaking to each other and having meetings virtually or over the telephone? How do we know that the teams are not just continuing And the answer that I often come back with here is that, of course, there are measures to actually prevent that happening. Of course, no one's allowed to log into company systems. No one's allowed to go into the physically go into their factory. They have to actually lock the doors other than for a few bits of maintenance here and there. Teams have ledgers that digitally log things like wind tunnel time and CFD usage and all of those things are carefully and meticulously monitored by the FIA anyway. So they would know any of those things. The company telephone systems, the company email systems, they can all be accessed and checked by the FIA. But very much this is a self-policing effort. This is a summer break that is designed to give the Formula One fraternity, the Formula One community, literally that, a break. It was brought in because the Formula One season was becoming extended, not only in terms of time in the calendar year, but the number of races growing. It was becoming more and more intense. The amount of travel was getting more and more. The number of longer haul races was increasing. And the pressure that that was putting onto the staffing requirements of Formula One teams, but also the supply chain of Formula One, the infrastructure that surrounds a Grand Prix event, was becoming greater and greater and greater. And whilst the teams were all recognising that whilst human performance is a huge factor in how we go racing, from the drivers all the way down to every member of staff, the FIA and Formula One themselves also had to recognise this. So when people ask me, how on earth does anyone know that teams are not continually, secretly working on their cars and on their systems and trying to find an advantage? Because if you're in a championship fight, who's to say that the likes of Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes, who's to say they're not just continuing to create developments behind the scenes away from the watching eye of the FIA? Well, I'm sure those things could happen. I'm sure if somebody really wanted to be clever enough, they could circumnavigate the system. They could find a way around it. You can't stop Adrian Newey going home for his summer break, even lying on a beach somewhere on holiday and taking out a notepad and starting to sketch a new rear wing. You can't stop that happening. You can't stop people thinking about things. That's a continual process that everybody has. But the reality is that every Formula One team knows the importance of their staff taking a break, of their team taking a break. If we don't take a break, at some point in a long, intense, high-pressure season, things will break, things will collapse, things will fold and fail. They need to be on form right from day one and be on the same brilliant form, if not better, by the time they get to the end of the season. And the only way that can happen is by monitoring 
the status of the individuals, of the team, the health, the well-being, something that Formula One teams now take incredibly seriously. Using things like nutritionalists, sports psychologists, trainers, physicians, all of these different skill sets they've brought into the team, not just to look after the drivers anymore. Now we look after all members of staff because that health and well-being, that mental fortitude, that mental capacity to keep going as well as any physical capacity is so important, not just to alleviate suffering, but to maximise performance. If you want to be the best Formula One team, yes, you need the best people, but you need all of those best people singing from the same hymn sheet at the top of their voices all the way through a season. So my point is the summer break is exactly that. It's a break and it's a much needed break. It's a break that the teams encourage. It's a a break that the teams enforce within their own organisations because they know how important it is. They want their staff to go on holiday. They don't want their staff coming into the factory. They don't want their staff continually thinking about the problems they think about every single day. They don't want them sketching drawings, lying on a beach. They want them to be on a beach with their families, enjoying a bit of rest and relaxation, a bit of downtime, stepping away from the business entirely and switching off and then coming back refreshed. And so the very point of the break is that the teams want their people to do that. And so we don't have this big problem of policing to the same level that so many people suspect we'd need to. Of course it's policed. Of course there might be occasions when a team might be really struggling, when the stakes might be high, and somebody could see an advantage in certain sections of their organisation continuing to work away if they thought they could get away with it. But human performance, human well-being is now seen as such a major factor in that performance, in the performance of the team, that it's actually less of a worry than most people think because the break becomes more important than trying to steal an illegal advantage by continuing to work. And that is where the message in this part of this podcast lies. The break is important and a break for any of us is hugely important in our lives. As I said in the opener to this podcast, a break could mean anything from a lovely two-week holiday lying on a beach under the sunshine somewhere. A traditional break like that where you get away from your regular life. You disappear from home. You disappear from work. You disappear from your neighbours. The worries and stresses of your job or money or bills or whatever it might be, you just get away. Those kind of breaks can be amazing. Any of us that have been lucky enough to experience things like that know what it does for us. So when we come back, we feel a little bit more refreshed. We feel like we've reset and we can go again. We can take on those challenges again because our stress levels have dropped. We have a bit more capacity to deal with the stresses and strains of life again. Whereas before the break, our stress levels might have been up somewhere near the limit. And if we hadn't taken the break... Well, what's going to happen? Something's going to collapse. You can't keep continuing to build stress levels and expect it not to have some major catastrophic incident in the end. So the break is important. But a summer holiday is far from being the only type of break that we can have. It might be a really nice one for some people. It might be a luxury for so many people that so many people simply can't afford. But there are so many other forms of break, forms of reset in our lives that we often overlook that sometimes we see as kind of getting in the way of our performance. We get this break every single day where we go to bed. 
having a sleep. That's a reset. That is a break. Our body is taking a break. We can't do without that. And we need a certain amount of that break every night to reset our bodies and our minds to be able to go again the next day. And if you've been through a number of nights where you haven't slept well or you haven't allowed yourself the amount of sleep you need, you'll know what I mean. Because eventually what happens is your capacity for performance diminishes. You become grouchy. You stop being able to think straight. You find it difficult to make decisions. You become short-tempered. You get headaches even. Your physical performance starts to wane as well as your mental capacity. So we know how important that break is. There are many, many studies on the importance of sleep and how not only it impacts your performance, but it mitigates against things going wrong, against illnesses, against your health deteriorating. Sleep is one of the most important things that any of us can do. We should focus more on it. And I'm guilty of that myself. I probably don't sleep enough. But I am now aware of that importance. I wear a sleep tracker. I've started looking into the data around my sleep. And that's really helped me to maximise the hours that I think I have available to sleep, to prepare my body ready for sleep, to think about how I behave and how I act before I go to sleep and how that impacts the quality of sleep that I get. So that when I wake in the morning, that reset, that break that I've had has been as impactful as it can be. And I'm as ready as I can be to go again. So sleep, of course, is one of those things. And we can take days off. We can do all manner of regular types of break, the sort of things that we all know about, but often don't put enough importance on. But actually, again, that's not the only type of break we can take. And the one that I wanted to focus on, the one I want to talk to you about was one that, again, I learned from my time in McLaren. I learned the importance of this. I learned the value of this type of break. And I mentioned it in the intro to this podcast, a moment of calm amongst the chaos. Formula One can so often seem like moments of chaos when the pressure's on, when we're up against it, when something's gone wrong, when a driver's had a a crash, when the clock is ticking down towards that all-important qualifying session and the car's not ready. Whatever it might be, there's always something. We're up against the clock. We're up against time pressures, we're up against work pressures, the amount of work, an idea that somebody's had that we want to implement. All of these different things create pressure. They create stress. And so often that stress can impact people's performance, as we've talked about on so many occasions. And one of the things that we talked about developing on an individual basis at McLaren was the need to take a moment of calm amongst the chaos. And one of the techniques that I was taught when we went out to the Finnish Olympic Institute, which we used to do at the end of every season to spend a week or so out there. I've talked about this before. We go through a series of biometric tests. We create training programs, bespoke training programs for members of the team, depending on what their roles were in pit stops, for example. But we also looked at psychological advantages that we could gain for ourselves over others. We looked at methods and techniques that could help us to maximise our performance in almost every area. And one really simple trick, one so simple tip that was passed on to me on one of those visits that I'm going to pass on to you now, and it will seem ridiculously simple, but I want you to trust me on just how powerful a tip this is, was when they talked to me about breathing. 
Now, breathing is one of those things that, well, we're all adept at it, aren't we? We've been doing it our whole lives. It's something that we find very easy. It's something that keeps us alive. It's a necessity. We can't do without it. We do it every single day, thousands and thousands of times. So we all know how to breathe, right? So how can that be so important? Well, this was talking about how breathing in a different way to the way you normally breathe can really impact a difficult moment, can give you that break, that reset that we've been talking about. How important that reset is wasn't under question, wasn't in doubt. We knew the importance of a break and a reset when stress levels start to rise, start to become high. We know we need a reset. That's what the sleep does for us overnight, but that takes hours and hours. It happens at the end of a day. What about when we're in the really difficult moments, the big moments that happen all the time in our lives, that a short moment, a few seconds, could help to reset. And that's where breathing came in. And we were taught a whole number of different breathing techniques. But the one really simple one for me that I've developed and practiced over time, and now I've kind of got down to a T, is this idea of taking one really big, deep breath in. And you can try this right now. You close your eyes in a moment of chaos. Step out of the the hub of it. Step out of the middle, the eye of the storm. Take a moment. Step out the back of the garage is what they used to tell us. If this is happening to you, if you feel like stress levels are building to the point where you're struggling to think clearly anymore, where you're worrying about things rather than doing your job, step out the garage just for 30 seconds. Close your eyes. Take an enormous deep breath in through your nose. Big one. Five or six seconds of deep inhalation through your nose, keeping those eyes shut. And then the important part here was the controlled exhalation of that breath. And it was about taking longer to breathe out than you took to breathe in, controlling it through pursed lips. And I know you probably think I'm sounding like a crazy person here, but I want you to trust me. I want you to try it. Deep breath in through your nose. Hold it for just a couple of seconds. And the important part here is how you control the breath out, out through your mouth. So in through your nose, out through your mouth, through pursed lips, leave a small, narrow gap and gradually allow that breath to just escape through those lips. But control it. Do it at your speed. It's not one big dump of breath. It's controlling it, drawing it out, making sure the exhalation lasts longer than the inhalation. And this has a number of effects. The first one is that it immediately slows down your heart rate. And when we get into stressful situations, moments of intense pressure, our heart rate is one of the first things to rise. And when our heart starts to beat faster, it sends more and more blood around our body. It sends more blood to our brain. We get a rush of blood to the head. That common phrase we talk about, a rush of blood to the head. What happens when you get a rush of blood to the head? You don't make good decisions. You struggle to make those decisions. You make rash decisions. You make decisions that you might later come back to regret. So we don't want that. So if we can lower the heart rate by doing this, then there's an immediate positive. There's an immediate benefit. And the point was, we could do this for as long as we wanted. And the longer you're able to do it, the more impactful it will be. If you do this for five minutes, if you sit outside, almost like meditation, with your eyes closed, doing this long, deep breath in through your nose, even slower, controlled breath out through your mouth, still with your eyes closed and focusing on that circular motion of the breath. Focus on it coming in through your nose, passing down into your lungs and then out through your throat and through your mouth. 
that circular motion, if you can focus all of your attention onto that breathing routine, that breathing method, you slow down your heart rate, you leave no more capacity in your mind for these things that are causing you the stress and worry, because all of your focus is now zoned in on this attention you're giving your breath. And it takes time to perfect this. But if you can do those things, you start to forget gradually about the things you were worrying about. And if you do it for five minutes, you'll find that your heart rate will come down to a really low level, maybe a resting heart rate level, even lower than you were in a normal moment in your working day. And when your heart rate's low, you're calm, you're under control. That rush of blood to the head starts to drain away and you get back to normal levels again. You're not thinking about the thing you're stressed or worried about. And so everything begins to reset. And what happens was you might not, you know, you might not have five minutes. You might not have 10 minutes. As I say, the longer you can do it, the bigger impact it might have. But if you've got one minute, if you've got 30 seconds, and I do this today, and believe me, I promise you, it still works. Now all I have to do is one big deep breath in and one long, really slow, drawn out exhalation. Doing that once might take me 30 seconds and the impact it has on me, on my stress levels, on my levels of calm, on my heart rate, all of the things I've talked about is immense. It's immensely powerful. 30 seconds, we've all got 30 seconds. We can all manage to find 30 seconds even in a chaotic moment. And so it was something that I developed through my time at McLaren. We were all taught it. Some of us took it on. Some of us thought it was mumbo jumbo. Some of us embraced it and others didn't. I embraced it. And for me, it works. And so what I'm asking you to do, I'm encouraging you to go and try that kind of technique yourself. Because if you can do those things, if you can have that impact that I talk about, that it works, that it has for me, If that happens to you, I'd love to know how it makes you feel, what kind of results it gives you. Because if stress is a contributing factor to lowering our performance levels, and if, let's just say, if that technique could work for you, and it might take 30 seconds or a minute, maybe longer in the beginning, but if you practice it like anything, you become better at it. The hardest thing for me was zoning my focus in on that breath. Of course, the motion of breathing in and breathing out, we can all do that. But zoning your mind in on that process is one of the key elements of this. Because if you're doing the breathing motion, but still thinking about the thing that was causing you stress, well, you're not getting all of the benefits of the process. Taking time to distract yourself, take yourself away rather from those distractions and zone in on the thing that you're focusing on. And to be quite frank, it doesn't matter what you focus your mind on. The point is, it's just taking your mind away from the thing that was causing you the worry. But the breathing technique and focusing on that is something that I found immensely helpful in so many situations. And we talked earlier about going into a big moment like a job interview. How many people find that when they're stood outside the door of the office they're about to walk into, their heart rate has risen to a level that is now pounding. They can feel it in their chest. They're all of a sudden, they're not thinking about the calmness and the the preparedness that they've had going into what would be a normal conversation. They're focused on this outcome, this consequence that I talked about earlier. The heart rate's pounding to get the rush of blood to the head. Do it then. Stand outside the office, take a big, deep breath, control the outward breath, and then knock on the door, and in you go. I hope you'll be amazed 
and how powerful a technique this can be for you. Moments like that are perfect chances to try it. When you are in a stressful situation because somebody's cut you off at the traffic lights, if you're a person who reacts to that, take the breath. If you're going into a situation at work where you've got to do a really difficult presentation in front of a lot of people and you're nervous, take the breath. The big, deep breath in, the slow, controlled breath out, longer breath out than the breath in, and focus the mind on exactly what's happening with that breath. Give it all of your attention to leave no attention to wander and think about these potentially destructive outside factors. I use this technique when my children are are winding me up, when they're being naughty, when they're being disruptive, because it can drive you mad. And every parent on the planet can relate to this, I'm sure. Quite often we fire back and we create an argument. Same with a wife or husband. My wife does it to me. She drives me mad on occasions and I do the same to her. And on occasions we rise to it and we fight back and it creates an argument. It blows up and it can blow up very quickly. But if you can take a breath, before reacting, we can react in a much better way. And if you think about the big things that happen to us, the disasters, the failures, the big moments that seem like the end of the world, the moments that annoy us or frustrate us or make us angry, our reaction to those moments is what matters. We can't do anything about a moment that's already happened. It's already happened. It's gone. What we can do something about is our reaction to it, how we respond to it. And quite often, so many of our successes come as a result of reacting to our failures in the right way. And we can enhance that by taking a breath. Because when we react impulsively, when we react in the moment, when we react fiercely or angrily to a situation through frustration, we rarely make good decisions. We rarely react in a way that when we reflect on it later was the optimum way to react. So if you can take a breath, you'll make a better decision. Your body's calmer. Everything's in the right place to think more clearly about what you should be doing, about what behaviour now, having had what's just happened to us already, having had what's gone, our behaviour next, the thing we do next, is what really will determine what the eventual outcome will be. Because the failure, the thing that was disappointing, that's not a full stop. That's a, that's a comma in this particular sentence, the next part that comes after the comma is the thing that you have some control over. And if you're making poor decisions, if you're making decisions under stress, you're not going to make good ones. You're less likely to make good ones and the outcomes are less likely to be positive. The success is going to be harder to find when you're always operating at a level of stress, of tiredness, of weakness. So taking a break is critical in those moments. Taking a big break every now and again to reset your entire life, if that's what it takes. Reset the office environment, reset the family environment. Those big breaks, the days off, the holidays, the big sleeps, the lie-ins on a Sunday morning, if that's what works for you, those breaks are important. But we can also take a break in amongst a chaotic moment. And sometimes those little micro breaks can be even more powerful. They can be just as powerful. Formula One might be on its big summer break right now, but Formula One personnel, whether you're a driver, a mechanic, an engineer or whatever, have to find ways to alleviate the worries, the stress, the troubles that come up in the challenges that we face every single day. And it's not exclusive to Formula One. 
I almost guarantee every single one of you can at least think of a moment that's happened to you in the last week or so where this technique just might have worked. And if you can get over the fact that you might feel silly closing your eyes, taking that big deep breath and exhaling it slowly, if you can get over what you might feel that looks like, what it might look like to somebody else, but embrace the benefits of it, you can really understand how powerful it can be. So give it a go. These are techniques that were taught to me by elite organisations working with athletes at the very highest level, Olympic athletes. They work for them. They've taught them to Formula One drivers. It works for them. And they taught it to a Formula One team. And I can tell you from experience that it works for me. It continues to work for me to this very day, long after I've stopped working for the team. I can use it in my everyday life. And so can you. So I encourage you to just give it a try. What have you got to lose? What have you got to lose? You can do it on your own in a quiet moment. You can do it right now. The moment this podcast finishes, do it. Just switch the podcast off. We're almost at the end and take a deep breath and just see what happens to your heart rate. If you happen to be wearing an Apple watch or a fitness tracker like I do, you can actually see what it does to your heart rate. You can actually see the data in front of you. You can witness your heart rate lower. It's mind blowing stuff. It's as easy as taking a breath And we know what the benefits of lowering your heart rate are. We know what the benefits of clearing your mind are. So why not give it a go? I'm going to leave you with that over the next week or so. Try it, practice it, develop it, fine tune it for you. That's a technique that works for me, but it might be able to adapt it slightly that works for you. You might be able to find a better way. You might be able to find a way that works for you in a more impactful way but give it a go. Because unless you give it a go, you simply won't experience the power that I experience and how it's helped me in my life. So try it. That's all I ask. The other thing I'd ask, of course, as ever, is that you can give me a like, a follow, a subscribe, somehow engage with this podcast. And please, if you can, those all important ratings and review in the Apple Podcast Store. If you can do that, I will be so, so grateful. Have a wonderful week, folks. Tag me in anything you post about this podcast on social media. I will retweet it. I'll reshare it and I will appreciate it. Have a wonderful week. And whatever it is you're doing, don't forget this. Do the right things and do the things right.